Welcome to this E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter, New Insights into Lifestyle Modification. With us today is that issue's author, Dr. Ellen Mowry, Associate Professor of Neurology and Epidemiology from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe the role of obesity, vitamin D status, and sodium intake in multiple sclerosis, discuss the impact of rehabilitative and physical activity enhancement on neurologic function and aspects of wellness in people with multiple sclerosis, and summarize the impact of treating urinary dysfunction on the health-related quality of life in people with MS. Dr. Maori has indicated that she has received research grant support from Biogen, as well as free medication for clinical trials from Teva. She has indicated that her presentation will not reference the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products, with the exception of vitamin D supplementation, which is not directly indicated as an MS therapy. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Maori, thank you for joining us today. I'm pleased to be talking with you today, Bob. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed some of the recent publications that reported on how a number of modifiable lifestyle factors can impact risk, symptoms, and prognosis in patients with multiple sclerosis. Today, we want to focus on how some of this new information can translate into improving clinical practice. So start us out, if you would please, Doctor, by bringing us a patient scenario. I saw one of my patients today who presented me with a really interesting question She's 32 years old, and she's had symptoms of relapsing remitting MS for about 10 years. Her disease began with tingling and numbness on one side, and she had a workup at the time that showed lesions in the brain and the cervical spine and was told she possibly had a demyelinating disease, although in the next year or so developed a new Lermite spine and was told that she should probably start disease-modifying therapy for multiple sclerosis. However, she declined any such medication. And then about five years ago, she developed some minor sensory findings and then another episode consistent with a relapse about a year after that, at which time she did agree to start an injectable MS therapy. And then over the past four years or so, she's been clinically and radiographically stable with no evidence of new MS disease activity. But when I saw her today, she told me that she'd started a gluten-free diet and she decided to come off her injectable therapy because she doesn't feel like it was helping her. And she asked me if the gluten-free diet was better or if she should switch to the paleo diet, considering all the information on the internet about that. She also told me she was taking a number of over-the-counter supplements as well as vitamin D3, 1,000 international units per day. And her 25-hydroxyvitamin D level, when I checked it today, was 29 nanograms per milliliter. So here's a patient who's aware that diet can have an effect on her MS, even though she's getting her information from the internet, which we all know contains at least as much misinformation as it does information. Coming to you with at least some awareness of how their lifestyle can impact their MS, how common have you found that among the patients you see? Now, I think with the advent of the internet and pretty sophisticated group of patients, people spend a lot of time researching MS and in particular are really interested in understanding how their lifestyle choices can affect the disease. I happened to do an internet search of diet and multiple sclerosis several months ago and retrieved 13 million hits. So there's a lot of information there and it's really hard to weed through all of the different websites to get a clear answer about diet and how it impacts the disease. 
This patient specifically asked you about two diets, the gluten-free diet and the paleo diet. Have either of those diets been shown to be helpful for people with MS? So a lot of diets have been purported on websites to be helpful for people with MS. And in general, it's interesting to think about because we do know that MS seems to be more and more common over the past several decades. And recently, there's been a clear link demonstrated between obesity and the risk of MS. This is highlighted in the Langer-Gould article that is discussed in the newsletter. And in that article, particularly extremely obese girls are at very high risk of later developing MS. So I think that there's a good rationale for looking at diet and how it impacts multiple sclerosis. And there are many ways biologically in which the food we eat may influence MS or the risk thereof is thought to directly impact the immune system also can change the bacteria in the gut that are known to be educators of the immune system and teaching the immune system about what belongs in the body and what doesn't belong. So it's really plausible that through one of those mechanisms or even a different mechanism, the foods that we eat could certainly impact MS risk or even prognosis. Despite all of that exciting rationale, the data supporting a specific diet are a little bit limited. There was a recent study by Ferez et al., which I also highlighted in the newsletter, looking at salt and how that might be associated with MS activity. They measured urinary sodium excretion from a morning urine sample and evaluated whether the amount of sodium in the urine was linked to the risk of subsequent MS relapses or new and active inflamed spots on brain MRI scan. And although the study wasn't perfect, there was a pretty strong association between that sodium level and the risk of activity. So about four times an increase in the risk of relapses for people taking in very high amounts of sodium. And then in terms of MRI activity, also nearly about a 3.5 times increase in the risk of new or enhancing lesions on the MRI scan in the roughly two years of follow-up. In terms of other diets, though, there really aren't great studies that have good solid study designs to indicate a specific diet is helpful. People try gluten-free and they try paleo and some say that they feel better, which certainly may be the case, but there haven't been rigorous studies to look at how the diets actually impact the disease activity. So no strong evidence basis that one diet is better than another. That's got to be very frustrating for those patients who really want to make diet change a part of their lifestyle modification. What do you tell these people? What do you recommend to your patients? That's a great question. It is frustrating, I think, both for the patients as well as for doctors who want to be giving patients the right tips and tools to best manage the disease. What I tell my patients now is that there are a lot of emerging studies indicating that people with MS who have a number of other what we call comorbid illnesses are at higher risk of bad outcomes related to the MS. So although I don't think that we know of a specific diet that directly impacts MS, we do know that there is a diet that is appropriate in terms of preventing comorbid cardiovascular bad outcomes. And that's a sort of Mediterranean-style diet in which people are recommended not to eat a lot of processed food, not have a lot of simple sugars, and instead eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, eat more white meat and fish than red meat, moderate alcohol intake. And so I generally suggest to people that if they are interested in modifying their diet at this time to follow that sort of Mediterranean-style diet. 
what we really all know we should be doing anyhow. Uh, Dr. Mowry, I, I want to go back to something in your initial description of this patient, and that's that she stopped her injectable MS medication because she didn't think it was working for her. Now, I'm guessing that her question to you about diet was that she assumed that diet alone would help control her symptoms. How do you respond to a situation like that? Right. So that was a concern that I had, too, in speaking with my patient earlier today. A lot of people are hoping that a lifestyle modification might alone treat MS. And I always tell people this is a complementary approach to treating the disease. I think in this particular case, the patient assumed that the MS medication wasn't helping her anymore because she was not having any new symptoms or new spots show up on the MRI scan. But in reality, that's more likely to be an indicator that the treatment was working for her, not because it wasn't doing anything. So I always have to tell my patients that's how we know it's doing its job if we're not seeing that type of activity. Nonetheless, since comorbid illnesses are definitely a big prognostic factor in terms of bad outcomes for people with MS, certainly, again, trying this Mediterranean-style diet while we await better data as a complement to the MS therapy is definitely something I encourage people to do. Now, this patient also started taking a variety of herbal supplements. What do you advise your patients in that area? That's a great question. A lot of people do look to supplements as an adjunct to their MS treatments as well. And unfortunately, just like for diet, there really aren't too many data supporting the use of one particular supplement or any of the supplements at this time. And really, in medicine, we look for data from randomized control trials where people, by a flip of a coin, are assigned to either receive the intervention or typically a placebo. And there really aren't great randomized controlled trials to support the use of any particular supplement. Furthermore, supplements are not as tightly regulated by the Food and Drug Administration as are medications that are approved. So we don't really know a lot about their safety, nor do we know a lot about how the supplements could interact with prescribed medications that people with MS are taking. So I tell people I really can't make a particular recommendation to take a particular supplement, nor do I know that the supplement won't in fact be harmful. However, that advice about supplements does not apply to supplementing vitamin D. Is that correct? Right. She was taking cholecalciferol, 1,000 international units, and had a vitamin D level in the blood of 29 nanograms per milliliter. The vitamin D story in MS is becoming more and more compelling, both for its influence on MS risk and prognosis. In the newsletter, I highlight this new Mockery paper that looked at vitamin D status in a unique way as a risk factor for MS by analyzing a predicted vitamin D level based on a person's genetic makeup from some specific genes that influence vitamin D levels. And so it really confirmed a prior paper in which there was a clear association between higher levels of vitamin D and lower risk of subsequently developing multiple sclerosis. In addition, there are observational data published that support that even among people who already have MS, those whose vitamin D levels are lower have an increased risk of relapses, new MRI lesions, disability progression, and loss of gray matter volume on the MRI scan. However, we still are awaiting results of randomized control trials to help us understand if supplementing with vitamin D is in fact helpful or if the apparent effect of vitamin D is 
not really a vitamin D effect at all, but perhaps is related to some covariate that isn't measured in those studies. So we have a lot of work to do there. So what do you tell your patients? Currently, I discuss the pros and cons of vitamin D supplementation with each of my patients before prescribing or suggesting that people take vitamin D. And in particular, although we don't know of any specific negative consequences of mild increases in vitamin D levels, we sometimes do try to provide supplementation with a target vitamin D range in my clinic of 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. But again, I really stress to people that it might not be helpful and it could have harms that we don't really realize at this time. And so when I'm aiming for that level of vitamin D, most of my patients require somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 international units of the cholecalciferol to achieve that range. And thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Ellen Mowry from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. Hello, this is Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. If you found today's program on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins E-Multiple Sclerosis Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review provides expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. For additional information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this E-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of this program. Our guest is Dr. Ellen Mowry from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and our topic is new insights into lifestyle modification. We've been discussing how some of the new information Dr. Mowry reviewed in her newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. Uh, So to continue, doctor, please bring us another patient scenario. I saw another wonderful patient of mine today, a 67-year-old woman who's had MS for a long time. She used to have a relapsing remitting course, but over the past five years, she really has experienced a slow decline in her gait. She came in today saying that her last attack was about seven years ago prior to starting her MS therapy. She has a history as well of poorly controlled type 2 diabetes and complained today of several symptoms that seemed consistent with depression and severe fatigue. On her examination, her body mass index was 35 kilograms per meter squared, and her neurologic exam demonstrated a mild left hemiparesis, moderate loss of vibratory sensation at the toes, spasticity and hyperreflexia in both legs, and a gait that was spastic. And in fact, it took her almost 12 seconds to walk 25 feet. So she really came in today to discuss how we could improve her symptoms. Your initial impression of this patient, doctor? This patient has secondary progressive MS, and I think she still has ongoing risk of relapses since prior to starting her MS therapy, she had several and now hasn't had any. So I probably wouldn't change her platform therapy at this time. But unfortunately, the secondary progressive course that she now has as well does not have any known approved therapies to halt its progression. There are a number of other things, though, that I think she can work on to improve her overall outlook in terms of her health. We talked before about how comorbid illnesses can influence the risk of worse outcomes for people with MS, and she has poorly controlled diabetes. 
Her body mass index is very high and also deserves attention. And she has a number of symptoms related to MS, including depression, fatigue, and spasticity. So I think there are a number of lifestyle modifications she could make that will help really improve her quality of life. Uh, Tell us about that, if you would. What kinds of lifestyle modifications would you recommend? The first thing I'd recommend to this patient is that she initiate a regimen of stretching and routine exercise. First, the exercise might help boost her metabolic rate so she can lose some of the weight that she's put on. And secondly, highlighted in the newsletter is an article by Paluti et al., which demonstrated that a simple intervention that they used to try to encourage people to do more physical activity not only improved people's physical activity, but it also influenced disease outcomes such as depression and fatigue in a meaningful way. The stretching that I would recommend to her might also be a first step towards treating her spasticity. And in a patient like this, particularly if they haven't been exercising in a while and have had a change in their neurologic exams, I sometimes find a short course of physical therapy to be helpful as therapists can help guide her to figure out what safe and appropriate ways she can initiate to manage her mobility problems. Comorbid conditions, as you said, have been linked to worse outcomes for people with MS. Now, this woman is obese, and she also has type 2 diabetes. How would you talk to her about these conditions? Well, you know that obesity and overweight problems are difficult for a number of people in the United States, but they're particularly relevant to people with multiple sclerosis since we know that they may worsen the long-term outcomes for MS patients. As reviewed in the newsletter, obesity seems to be a risk factor for the disease. It's unclear if obesity itself worsens things like MS attacks or new lesions, other things to that extent, but certainly we know that the overall health outcomes are worse for people with such cardiovascular problems. So I'd have a frank discussion with this patient about that, that her uncontrolled diabetes also, in addition to having a bad effect on the MS, means that she's at risk for things like heart attack, stroke, kidney failure. This is a major health priority for her now. In patients like this, I discuss whether or not seeing a nutritionist would be helpful in addition to recommending exercise. And also, she may be a candidate for a bariatrics evaluation starting first with trying to figure out if there are ways to avoid surgery through other interventions, but when possible, to even think about bariatric surgery. And there have been recent studies actually suggesting that bariatric surgery may be more helpful than other measures in controlling diabetes outcomes. So I think that that would be a reasonable approach for her. So in your opinion, Improving her diet and increasing her exercise, uh, do you believe that's going to be enough to help these patients? I don't think that diet and exercise alone are likely to be a treatment for this patient. She has a lot of things going on, but I do think that we know that exercise has a, a meaningful impact on other neurologic diseases and has been shown to improve quality of life and many of the symptoms that this particular person is experiencing. So I really think that these lifestyle modifications are an important adjunct to the traditional medical management structure. And then the other thing to note for this particular person is that we should always be thinking about screening our depressed MS patients for suicidal intentions, too, as suicide is overrepresented in this population. A very good point, doctor. Thank you. Let me ask you now to bring us another patient, if you would, please. I saw another 49-year-old woman. 
she's had a history of MS for 10 years, and she came for her first evaluation with me. She stated that for the past three years, she's had progressive right-sided weakness and has fallen multiple times. Over the past two years, she's noticed bladder dysfunction. At first, she was experiencing frequency of urination and urgency where she felt like she could barely make it to the bathroom on time before needing to start urinating. Although in the past several months, she's had urgent continence essentially every day. Sometimes she also notices that when she gets up from the toilet, she has to go back about 10 minutes later, even though she felt initially that she had completely emptied the bladder. She's not a person who drinks an excessive amount of fluid. She's not a coffee drinker. So none of those things seem to be influencing her at this time. But she says it's really becoming embarrassing for her. She wears a pad now when she leaves the house, and sometimes she feels that she smells of urine. She doesn't notice any leakage of urine when she coughs. Her bowel movements seem regular. And her examination was notable for some substantial disability with a bilateral intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, spasticity in both legs and in one arm, and a moderate right hemiparesis, as well as a slow spastic gait and impairment of vibratory sensation at her toes. A first question. Bladder dysfunction. How common is it in patients with MS? I think bladder dysfunction is more common than many people recognize. I noticed that patients may not always volunteer that they're having bladder symptoms, but that if I ask, many people do notice even more subtle bladder problems such as urinary frequency. So I've really tried to incorporate asking people about bladder and even bowel dysfunction as part of my routine screening of new patients. Evaluating bladder dysfunction issues, what's your general process? The first thing I like to do when asking somebody about bladder dysfunction is to get a very good history. Is this a sort of classical overactive bladder with urgent continence? Has she had any frequency in terms of UTIs, urinary tract infections? Is there any cause for concern for one at the current time? And also it's important to evaluate if people seem to have a history of incomplete bladder emptying because that not only helps us think about what medications might be useful for treating the bladder symptoms, but over incomplete emptying also can contribute to episodes of incontinence. Would you prescribe urinary incontinence medication for her? In this particular patient, her bladder history is quite complicated. Not only does she have urinary frequency and urgency with urge incontinence, but I'm also concerned that she may have incomplete emptying based on the fact that even though she feels that she's emptied the bladder completely, she needs to go urinate again 10 minutes after she's been to the bathroom. And so this could be a problem if you prescribe a, a classic medication like an anticholinergic or anti-muscarinic medication because it basically can enhance retention of urine and contribute to worsening of the underlying problem. So in this sort of patient, I really like to get a post-void residual where we ask patients to fully empty their bladder or as much as they think they can, and then do an ultrasound of the bladder to see how much urine is left in there. And if there is a lot of urine left over, again, this might not be a person for whom a simple anticholinergic type medication will be helpful. For people with MS, bladder dysfunction can be really disabling and have a major impact on quality of life, as this patient described. So I have a very low threshold for getting at least one-time consultation from a urologist to help me understand what's going on with the person's bladder and to help make decisions about how to manage the specific bladder problems. 
In your initial description, you made a very specific point to highlight her bowel function. Why? It's important when you're getting a history about bladder problems to also ask about bowel control. First, the nerves that control the bladder also are related to bowel control. So people with MS who have bladder dysfunction often also have bowel issues, most typically constipation. It's also important to ask about because sometimes people who are not controlling their bladder function well try to restrict the amount of fluid that they take in in order to avoid embarrassing accidents. And that restriction of fluid can worsen constipation. And at the same time, constipation itself can affect bladder control. So if people are constipated, addressing it may help improve the control of the bladder. The other thing to note from this case is that I was struck by how impaired her gait was. It took her a very long time to walk a given distance, which means that if she has urinary urgency, she's at even higher risk of having an episode of incontinence. So she really has a lot of things that could be contributing to her such frequent episodes of incontinence. So if medications to address her urgent incontinence are inappropriate, what other therapies might you consider? I mentioned that this is a patient I'd probably refer to the urologist's office for an evaluation, as I think she'll probably really benefit from specialty care in this regard. But it's worth noting that there are a lot of new therapeutic approaches to this common problem for people with MS. Not all of these approaches have excellent levels of evidence, but all of them have some encouraging data. Before I send somebody to the urologist, I always advise them to start with a simple measure, which is called scheduled voiding. So if people describe that their episodes of urgency or urgent continence are occurring, say, every two and a half hours, instead of waiting for that to happen, I say, well, try to take yourself to the bathroom every two hours so that you sort of game the system. You you beat your bladder to the punch and thereby may avoid the incontinence episode. The urologists in general have several non-pharmacologic or at least medications that aren't taken by mouth, such as botulinum toxin injections stimulation of the tibial nerve, as well as sacral neuromodulation. And in addition, there was a recent study that's highlighted in the newsletter by Block and colleagues, which showed that there are a number of physical therapy-related activities that can actually not only reduce incontinence, but also improve quality of life. So this woman whose quality of life has definitely been impacted by her bladder dysfunction may really benefit from one or more of these particular interventions. Now, you also noted that she's had a number of falls. What lifestyle modifications can be done to reduce the frequency of falls? I think this patient has a lot of things that are contributing to her fall risk. She has possibly vision difficulties since her eyes aren't moving together, so she may be experiencing some trouble seeing well. She has weakness, spasticity, loss of sensation, especially in her feet, and overall is imbalanced. So, One thing that I would try to target for her would be the management of her spasticity, which could include stretching and exercise, as well as medications for spasticity. And certainly exercise is one of the more important things, especially for people who have more progressive types of symptoms, to help at least minimize a contribution of disuse atrophy, where people are weaker, so they sit more, and so their muscles shrink to some extent, and then they're weaker, so they sit more, and it it can sort of snowball. A recent meta-analysis highlighted in the newsletter by Gunn and colleagues looked at whether or not various rehabilitation activities reduced fall risk. They said that there was no statistically significant reduction in fall risk, 
Although it's notable that because of the stringent criteria they used in terms of what studies were included in this meta-analysis, there are really only two studies that were included. So I would argue that perhaps we need better, larger studies to truly evaluate the impact of rehab and physical therapy on fall risk. But the GUN study did show a statistically significant benefit of rehabilitation for balance. So really, again, a lot of lifestyle modifications as well as medical management that might help this patient quite a bit. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Mowry. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, the role of obesity, vitamin D status, and sodium intake in multiple sclerosis. Right. So we first discussed that working with MS patients to reduce obesity, although we don't know if it impacts MS directly, may be of benefit since comorbid illnesses are linked to worse outcomes for people with MS. We also discussed the emerging data regarding sodium intake in MS, namely that high sodium levels in the urine, which are indicative of intake of sodium, were strongly linked to the risk of MS relapses as well as new lesions appearing on MRI scan. And then a new study we highlighted as well really strengthens the link between vitamin D status and the risk of MS. So we are really anxiously awaiting data from randomized control trials before definitively being able to say if supplementing with vitamin D can either prevent or treat MS. And our second learning objective, the impact of rehabilitative and physical activity enhancement on neurologic function and aspects of wellness in people with MS. We reviewed that behavioral interventions designed to increase physical activity not only led to an increase in physical activity, but that patients reported improvements in their depression, anxiety, and fatigue. We know that physical activity, as we reviewed here, also seems to improve balance. And from previous studies know that it it overall sort of prevents disuse atrophy and is good for our health. Physical therapy intervention may even be helpful for controlling urinary dysfunction in MS patients. Again, sort of highlighting how these lifestyle changes may enhance quality of life and reduce symptoms. Uh, And finally, the impact that treating urinary dysfunction can have on health-related quality of life issues in people with MS. We reviewed that urinary incontinence and bladder dysfunction in general have really strong impacts on people with MS in terms of their well-being and quality of life. I highlighted that it's important to take a good history to really understand the contributors to bladder dysfunction. And at a minimum, obtaining a post-void residual is helpful before prescribing medications, particularly for overactive bladder. We also reviewed that there are several targeted interventions, including tibial nerve stimulation, sacral nerve stimulation, and botulinum toxin, as well as physical therapy that can help bladder dysfunction, in addition to the more traditional oral medications that people have used to treat bladder problems in MS patients. We also discussed that the traditional pharmacotherapies, i.e. the anticholinergic or antimuscarinic therapies, can be problematic in people with MS who may have mixed types of bladder dysfunction. As if there is already a tendency to under-empty the bladder, these medications may exacerbate that problem, thus enhancing rather than improving the bladder dysfunction. Dr. Ellen Mowry from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Thank you for participating in this E-Multiple Sclerosis Review podcast. It's been a, a great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive e-multiple sclerosis review via email, please go to our website, www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.